0: Thanks for having me, really honored to be here. So, before I begin though, uh, I want to map out where I'll be going in this talk and where I won't be going in this talk. What I will be doing is examining, number one, the natural law, number two, the social data, and number three, sacred scripture. But what I will not be doing, and I'm sorry if this disappoints any of my uber-patriotic Americans in the audience, but I will not be talking about the constitutionality of firearm ownership. I have some strong opinions on the matter, but the case that I want to be making tonight is that which appeals beyond the American positivist attitudes towards the law and those are stronger anyways in in my opinion. So I'm giving this talk to Catholics and not all Catholics are American, sad to say, and I want to give a case that will appeal to Catholics not just in America but in Mexico, Brazil, France, Poland, Japan, China, and everywhere else. Unfortunately the Constitution of the United States doesn't have that sort of jurisdiction but the natural law does so that's why the first part of my talk will be focusing on the natural law, but if, however, you have any legal questions, I will be doing my best to answer them during Q and A. I didn't have to know a little bit about it being a gun salesman at Turner's during my time there. So if you have any legal questions, I'd be happy to answer them during Q and A. Okay. So the first thing we will be examining is the natural law. Whether you're Catholic, a Protestant, or some variation of heathen, we all have powers of natural reason and in conversations with others, we should be able to appeal to our common reason. So what would a natural law argument for gun ownership look like? Well, it might look like something like this. Um, If you look on the handout, this will be the background argument. So premise number one, for any rights we have, we also have the right to preserve said right. Premise number two, we have the right to life. Three, therefore, we have the right to preserve our life. And I think reasonable people would find this argument pretty straightforward. But now let's specify exactly how this would be done. Practically, what does that look like? Well, it might look something like this, right? So this is the main argument now. Premise number one, if owning a weapon helps us preserve our life, then we have a right to that weapon. Premise number two, owning a gun helps us preserve our life. Therefore, we have a right to a gun. Now, these two arguments, they seem similar enough, or at the very least, the second argument is completely consistent with that first one. Okay, so let's briefly examine each premise. What can be said for premise number one? So here, we should probably define the term right. What is meant by a right? Sometimes you see it abused in the culture, and all manners of perversions and absurdities are called rights. But what I mean by right is pretty straightforward. A good or service that you have the power or privilege to pursue. So, for example, if I have the right to my own money, right, to buy beer here at this wonderful establishment, then I should be able to uh, use it however which way I want. And uh, it'd be weird for you to tell me how I can or cannot uh, spend my own money. Uh, Or if I have the right to my own bodily autonomy, then I have the power and privilege to move uh, my body however I like. So I can dance, I can lay down, I can stand up in front of you all and bore you to death with some basic definitions and uh, distinctions, which uh, probably should go without saying anyway, something like the term rights. So a right is a good or a service that I have the power or privilege to pursue. But if you notice, if that's the definition of a right, then number one, premise number one on the, uh, the background argument seems to follow quite easily as it's it's pretty much just stating the definition of what rights are. So one way you could think of this is in the negative. All right, so take the right to life. If my life were to be put in danger, perhaps by being thrown into an oncoming train, then I ought to have the right to move out of that train's way. If, however, you were to tie me down to the train tracks like they do in the cartoons, uh, so that I cannot move out of harm's way, then what you are essentially doing is denying me my right To life, You are denying me uh, the ability to secure my right, the means to secure that right. Or suppose you owned all the water in the world, and as the legal owner of the water, of all the water in the world, you decide that I cannot have any of it, so that I may die of thirst, which would suck. This too seems like you are denying me the right to life, as drinking is a reasonable condition for my survival. So it would seem then that our having the right does mean that we have the right to those means. The willing of the ends entails the the willing of the means as well. Okay, so that's premise number one. So now what about premise number two? Do we have a right to life? Okay, I don't think this needs too much justification. As Catholics, we all agree that we have a right to life. We're kind of the primary force behind the pro-life movement in America. Uh, but more importantly, when we talk to someone who would like to take away our guns, uh, to some degree, they also believe in the right to life. If you listen to them and their justifications for gun control, it's usually something like, well, there are so many mass shootings and we need to reduce the number of mass shootings because people dying is bad, especially when it happens to little kids. They're like, and that's bad. So what they're, what they're doing there is they're uh, implicitly uh, acknowledging that the right to life is important. So... Um, They too believe in the right to life. That's all I'm gonna say about that premise. If you deny that, you probably need prayer and a psychologist, maybe even both. So three follows logically from one and two. Okay, so that sort of sets the background for the real meat of the argument now. So let's look at uh, that second argument. If owning a weapon helps us preserve our life, then we have a right to that weapon. This seems to be a a simple application of our principles concerning rights. So suppose a 70-year-old grandmother is attacked by a six-foot-five, 280-pound criminal with a knife. How in the world is she gonna preserve her own life? Are her mad jiu-jitsu skills gonna be enough? Probably not. It would seem like she is justified in using some kind of weapon. Why, because a weapon erases her greatest disadvantage, which is strength. There's a disparity of, of strength here. And the disparity in strength isn't trivial either. Many criminals choose their victims precisely because of this disparity. I know that I feel comfortable walking around in my neighborhood at night, but I wouldn't feel comfortable with my little sister walking around by herself at night. And since gun proponents tend to be, not always, of course, but I'm speaking in generalities here, since they tend to be sympathetic with stories about how women are constantly at a disadvantage compared to men, this is a clear and agreed-upon example where the disparity between a criminal victim need to be remedied. And how is that remedied? Well, quite obviously with a firearm, particularly a handgun, or or, sorry, a weapon, particularly a handgun. So, that premise gives at least the right to uh, the means for self-defense. But does it have to be a gun? Does it have to be a firearm? Particularly, does it have to be a handgun? It seems like yes, for a few reasons. First, it is proportional. Of course, for us Catholics, the principle of proportionality is a key in our distribution of justice. And that applies here. The force of the defense should be proportionate relative to the threat. If the threat is lethal, it seems to justify lethal defense. Pretty straightforward. And firearms, particularly handguns, seem to fit that bill. Now, what about other weapons like crowbars, baseball bats, pepper spray, or knives that may also um, be considered lethal? Well, actually pepper spray is not considered lethal. Such weapons are eliminated by other considerations. So for example, if your 70-year-old grandmother finds her life being threatened, then it doesn't seem practical that she would defend herself with a baseball bat. The ease in which a weapon can be used is another factor to be considered. For a semi-automatic firearm, a standard trigger pull only requires about four pounds of pull. This seems to be feasible for the majority of people, even for people with like arthritis. And a lot of my customers used to be old ladies with little arthritic hands. And we always tell them, like, you can adjust the trigger pull. So trigger pulls can be adjusted. Uh, semi-automatic firearms, are feasible even for um, arthritic people. So it's great. So it's the most reasonable choice uh, or it's the most reasonable weapon of choice for self-defense as it puts the least amount of burden on the victim to defend herself. And if that's the most reasonable choice then it therefore follows that we have a prima facie right to a firearm. And all this basically goes back to our most fundamental right to life. In short, the right to life entails the right to self-defense weapons, the most reasonable which most reasonable, of which is a firearm. And those are the, the two basic arguments. That's from the natural law. Uh, okay, so let's deal with some objections before we move on to the, the social data uh, portion of the talk. So the first objection may go something like this. If you believe in the right to a weapon, why just stop at guns? Why don't you believe you have the right to a grenade? Or even nukes? There's a few possible uh, rejoinders to this. The first possible one is just to seed it. Yeah, maybe I should have grenades, fighter jets, tanks, and the like. But while this might be a bit of an edgy response, it lets the objection get away with ignoring how it is that we justified firearm ownership in the first place. Remember, the the right to a firearm ownership was rooted in the individual self-defense. It seems unlikely that I would need a fighter jet or even a nuke for my individual self-defense. It seems unlikely that I would need a fighter jet. um, I'm sorry. While in principle... It may uh, justify those things in principle. Practically speaking, especially in large-scale uh, conflict, uh, it, it does no such thing. Though we should have, should we have large-scale conflicts, and indeed we might, we might see that in my lifetime, um, we should seriously return to that discussion. So maybe we can't talk about nukes now, but, or fighter jets now, grenades now, maybe in the future where we do have large-scale threats to our individual self-defense, then yeah, I think we should be able to revisit that. But for right now, the way I'm justifying this argument is just through self-defense, and I don't need that stuff for self-defense, practically speaking. In principle, maybe that's another story. So uh, the first part is just to maybe even seed that over. Just say, yeah, maybe. But then what's the problem there, right? Uh, Why can't the argument justify that as well? So the second possible response is to point out that there's a practical difference between handguns and things like RPGs, or missiles, or other WMDs. So the fundamental difference between what makes the handgun the most reasonable weapon for self-defense is the ability to discriminate. So when I point my handgun, the bullet goes wherever, I point it, unless it's like a high point or something. It, yeah, okay we, got some, okay, we got some people who know. If you know, you know. <laughs> In this sense, uh, it is discriminatory. And that is part of what makes it proportionate. Something like a grenade cannot discriminate. If I were to be in a crowded mall and I threw a grenade, I cannot make the grenade target only that which is my threat. It has the very real possibility of injuring innocent bystanders, something which is greatly diminished in a discriminatory weapon like a firearm. And so the natural law wouldn't so easily justify things like a grenade in cases of self-defense. Another objection is actually a family of arguments or a type of arguments and these are all by nature consequentialist arguments. So it'll go something like this, they'll say that due to the prevalence of mass shootings or school shootings or police shootings or the use of firearms in domestic abuse or the use of firearms in suicide, that these are sufficient reasons to ban or restrict the ownership of firearms. If you want to, uh, if you want murder or suicide to go down, then restrict guns they'll say. Now this is largely an empirical question, and unfortunately, my training is in philosophy and not in criminology or any other kind of social science, so I want to be upfront here and say that the subject is a little bit out of my expertise, but we can think about how to approach these claims. If my philosophy degree is worth anything, it's made it possible to think uh, about any subject out there, so let's think about this. I, I need to justify my degree somehow. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, they're not opening a lot of philosophy factories right now. So, Suppose over the years, and years and years and years of social research, after all the back and forth that we can have of examining like, methodology for studies, that the data actually does come in favor to those who claim that guns uh, make the world a lot less safe. Grant for the sake of argument that yes, gun ownership does indeed increase the rate of whatever horrific thing that gun grabbers want to say. Say they're totally right, and they have all the data on their side, that the social science debate is completely settled. Okay, what then? Are we defeated? Do we just hand over our guns? No, 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 not at all. But it's not as though that we are refusing to hand over uh, our firearms because we're stubborn. No, so think back to our first argument when we defined rights. So what is a right? What is a right? It's the power or privilege to pursue some good or service, and that power or privilege to maintain that right. But maintain it in the face of what? When we think of rights, especially fundamental rights, like the right to life, of which the right to self-defense is an expression of, then we tend to think that we maintain those rights, that those rights are unwavering even in the face of possible positive consequences, which would occur if they were violated. So, for example, this is my philosopher coming out. So, for example, suppose a doctor needed your organs in order to save a few dozen people. Now, typically, we think that we have the right to our own bodily integrity. My body cannot be violated. And my right to bodily integrity cannot be violated even if it means that more people will live. It may be the case that if you were to chop my body up, you could sell my body parts, and perhaps other people would live. But helping save lives, in this case, doesn't seem a sufficient justification for violating my fundamental rights. Especially if the right in question is my right to life. We can all see how evil and depraved chopping my body parts are. Unless, of course, you work for Planned Parenthood. So, in principle, even if restrictive gun laws were to be shown to have a net utilitarian benefit to society, that wouldn't present a good enough defeater to have our right to a gun taken away. But, as it so happens, is the social data on the side of the gun grabber? So it really depends on the question that's being asked. And I'll just list off a few here. Uh, I won't spend too much time and then I'll move on to the biblical data Uh, and then we can get to Q&A after that. So let's start with the simple if confounded question. Does increase in gun ownership correlate to an increase of crime? So pause for a moment and take note that I did not ask whether an increase in gun ownership leads to an increase in gun violence or gun deaths. That question is not a good question because it conflates justified uses with unjustified uses. Gun violence and gun deaths can actually be justified. So I used to get this a lot from customers. I remember I had one customer, was a poor little lady. She came in, she had bruises on her neck, she had really dark glasses on, and her story was that she w- got choked out earlier in the week uh, by her boyfriend. And she wanted to come in and get a gun for self-protection. But the way she qualified it was, but I don't want him to die. I don't want to kill him. I just want him to stop. And so it was a little, it was a little weird. We, we showed her some non-lethal weapons, some kinetic rounds. But her point was that as a Christian, she didn't want to kill the man, even though he was on top of her strangling her. And, you know, my heart went out to her. And you'd be surprised, as, as, a, as a gun salesman, I, I see quite a bit of that. Whenever I see documents, we'll get documents from people who don't have to show me their address because they're like in some kind of protection program. It's really sad. It's out there. The point is, guns are designed for killing. And that can be a scary thing to think about. And I think a lot of my other customers who come in, especially with the guys who has got like a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, they come in, they collect guns, they have like these violent sort of fantasies, this tough guy bravado sort of energy. And I don't think they really stop to think and meditate exactly what it is that they're planning for. You're telling yourself that you're willing to end the life of another human being, a human being made in the image of God, a human being that God loves dearly and died for. I've never done it. I've never killed anybody. But from all the stories I've read and I've seen, it's hardly a glamorous thing. Even cops in justified shootings are often told to take time off and are offered therapy. Killing a man, justified or not, is a grave issue, and it shouldn't be taken lightly. This woman, though, naive, at least understood what was at stake. So my point is sometimes that the right thing to do to end another man's life, even if he threatens your own life, it it can be right. It's serious and it's sad, but it can be the right thing to do. So when you read studies out there and they say gun ownership increases gun deaths or gun violence, it's conflating unjustified with justified shootings. So don't fall for that, so think about that. That's a distinction that needs to be made that I have not seen made carefully. So there's a conflation. Uh, I won't name any studies that do this uh, because there will always be new ones that do this. And what I'm trying to give you here is just a principled approach. Okay, so I have a whole section on the, the social data, but I'm in about 20 minutes, I'm a little behind. So I'm just going to skip right over to the biblical data. But if you are interested in the social data part, I did list, I think, seven or eight studies on your paper that you can go reference to. And most of my information comes from a very well-known criminologist. His name is Gary Kleck. I highly recommend Googling him and looking at his research. He's probably the foremost scholar on the issue of gun ownership and and gun crime. Okay? So, all right. uh, Let's go to biblical da da da. where am i okay so now on to sacred scripture so let's begin with the view that says uh we ought not own firearms right so the most common appeal here are the words of our lord when he says you have heard that it was said eye for an eye tooth for a tooth uh i have your your the scripture uh, printed on your handouts matthew 5 this is part of the beatitudes right <laughs> yeah i've heard that it was said eye for an eye tooth for a tooth but i tell you do not resist an evil person If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. So what someone might point to here is they'll say like, look, Jesus is commanding you to not defend yourself. So Christians can't use guns for self-defense. Or a more broad approach, and in my opinion, the stronger approach, is to argue that Christians ought to be something like pacifists. And pacifists are nonviolent by definition, even in the face of violent evil. Right, so think of like the Amish or the Mennonites. Before I entered the church, I was a Protestant in the Anabaptist tradition. So my friends were too, here in the audience. And Anabaptists are historically pacifists. Uh, so it's a view that I, I used to be very sympathetic with. And you'll have theologians like John Howard Yoder, who uh, were big advocates of Christian pacifism. But within the Catholic sphere, we have people like Pope Francis, who have said some specific pretty stinging things about gun manufacturers and gun owners so the 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 pacifist argument might go something like this right so they'll say that jesus never used violence to advance the kingdom of god in fact jesus rebuked saint peter in saint peter's use of force uh for the defense of our lord and since we should be like jesus we should also not use force even in defensive terms all right so what are we to make of this well let's start with the first verse from the beatitudes right you must turn the other cheek that whole thing. So the proper response is to understand it in its proper context, right? So Jesus isn't just dishing out a string of unconnected commands, like a laundry list of do's and do nots. The command to turn the other cheek comes in the context of rebuking scribes and Pharisees. He starts at the Beatitudes with a pattern, and the pattern is this, right? So you have heard that it was said, and then it'll be whatever, and then, but I tell you, And then whatever, right? So you have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with their brother is guilty of murder. Or you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully is guilty of adultery. And Jesus does this a few more times, and when we get to, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. So that's the context in which Jesus says this. And the point of this whole pattern is that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the interpretive key here. So what was happening was that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they were taking some very valid Old Testament laws, but then abusing them to the point that they became whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they were following the letter of the law, but inwardly, they were constantly violating the spirit of the law. So they were looking at women lustfully and would justify it by saying, but I'm not committing adultery. They were not going out and murdering people, but they would constantly be angry at their brothers. And it's in this context that Jesus says to turn the other cheek. So what we see going on here is the scribes and the Pharisees were taking a law which was legitimate about justice and taking that and abusing it by applying it to individual cases, which had nothing to do with real danger. It was about individual uh, insults, right? So there's another way that we can think about this. So Lori, my my lovely wife, my wife, Uh, Lori, if you can come up here for a sec. This is my wife, Lori. We've been married almost four months. We're pregnant. She's pregnant, pray for us. Okay, so, we're gonna do a little demonstration. Lori, love my life. Where is my right cheek? Here, okay. If you were to strike me on my right cheek, what would that look like? Now, if you were to strike me on my other cheek, what would that look like? There's a difference there. There's a difference between a backhand, which hits me on my right cheek, not in the nose, not the moneymaker, love. Okay. And then my other cheek. Okay. Thank you. I love you. you. So there's a clue here. When Jesus says when somebody strikes you on the right cheek, that is a strike of insult, not a strike that is lethal or a real danger to your life. And when you look at the Greek text here, the Greek word is rapiso, which literally means a slap. To sum it up, Jesus here is not talking about life-threatening circumstances. He's talking about personal insults. It's in that context that you turn the other cheek, and that does seem like the Christian thing to do anyways. Okay, so what about Jesus's rebuke of Saint Peter during Jesus's arrest, right? So the scene is recounted in all four Gospels, with some accounts adding different details in others. So clearly, Jesus was an innocent man, and it seems certain he was going to be put on trial in which he was going to be put to death. So if there was ever a time to use lethal force in a defensive manner, it would seem to have been at this time. So a few things can be said about this. So first, let me emphasize that St. Peter did intend on killing the man who we now know to be a guy named Malchus. How do we know that? Well, Peter, in swinging his sword, cuts off the ear. Very good, good job class. All right, A plus for everyone. So he cuts off the ear with a sword. Unless St. Peter has, like, surgical precision, uh, that was probably a miss. St. Peter probably missed. So if he missed, what did he aim for? Aim for the head. That's a gruesome way to die, right? Getting your head chopped off in the middle of battle. So St. Peter here is legitimately intending to kill this man. What does our Lord say? Our Lord does tell St. Peter to put the sword away. But note that Jesus could have been much more forceful. Does Jesus tell St. Peter to throw his sword away? No, he tells St. Peter to put the sword back in its sheath. The equivalent to that, since firearms are the modern equivalent of a lethal weapon, right? St. Peter did use a lethal weapon to try to kill a man. Jesus telling St. Peter to put the sword back in its sheath is the equivalent of him telling us to reholster our gun. Not to throw it away, not to give it over to Joe Biden or to the ATF, but to put it back. Put it back where it belongs, and belongs to St. Peter. Why? Because whoever lives by the sword shall die by the sword. That is what our Lord says. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus doesn't want any Christians, or sorry, does does that mean that Jesus does not want us to own any swords or firearms or lethal weapons? Not exactly. So what this means is that the kingdom of heaven cannot legitimately advance through violence. As a religion teacher in inner city Los Angeles, I constantly tell my students, Christianity is a religion of persuasion. We debate and we pray. Those are our spiritual and intellectual weapons. Pray the rosary. Hey, it sounds like the title of my talk, which we may uh, use to advance the kingdom of God. But you don't do it through violence, something a lot of my students are unfortunately very familiar with. A lot of their family members are in gangs or dealing drugs, and they see a lot of violence. That's what they know. So you don't do it through violence, but the advancement of the kingdom does in some sense seem distinct from trying to shoot, try to stop a shooting at something like at a mall or or some other place, right? So there's a difference. Use violence for self-defense, sure, not for the advancement of the kingdom. That seems fine. That seems fine. Maybe for the defense of the kingdom, but that's something else. All right, so add to this the consideration that Jesus commands them to have swords in the first place. We read in Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples to sell what they have and to go buy a sword. That's also on your your handout. I got the whole thing on there. And the disciples reply, okay, well, we have two. To which Jesus responds, that's enough. And I take this simply and straightforwardly. Jesus tells his disciples to have swords. Swords were lethal weapons. So Jesus is okay with Christians having lethal weapons, the the modern iteration of which is a firearm. Now, there are several possible responses to this. There are two basic responses to this. The first is that Jesus wasn't talking about literal swords, right? Jesus also calls himself the vine, the door, the light, but he is not literally those things. So then why think that he was being literal here as well? Well, a couple of responses to that. So it seems unlikely seeing how Jesus was telling the disciples to sell literal things, like a cloak, in order to obtain a sword. It would seem unlikely that Jesus would command you to sell your literal cloak in order for you to purchase a metaphorical sword. That'd be weird. Hey, sell this, get some real material stuff, and then go buy something that's immaterial. What? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. Sure doesn't, which is why that's probably not the correct interpretation, right? So it would seem unlikely that since Jesus is telling you to sell literal things, that you wouldn't, he would want you to have something metaphorical in its place. All right, another possible response is that the tone in which Jesus says, it is enough, is a frustrated tone. So if Jesus is telling the disciples, okay, go buy some swords, and the, dis- the disciples are like, Here are two of them. He's like, you know what? That's enough about this talk about swords. So they'll say Jesus was speaking in that tone, and sometimes you don't pick up tone, right? Sometimes I text my friends. We don't always pick up tone. Leads to misunderstandings. Maybe that's what's going on here. Or not. I'm gonna tell you why not. So this doesn't ring true, and it's probably a bad understanding of the text, right? It's it's more likely he's like yeah i'm like i'm frustrated why are you guys talking about swords well i mean jesus is the one that brought it up in the first place so why would jesus say something like hey go get some swords here we have two can you shut up about swords like jesus you're the one that brought it up in the first place like why are you getting mad at us so that doesn't seem to make sense that doesn't ring true right so that flow there actually is no flow it kind of comes at an abrupt stop so it's a bad interpretation it's a bad exegesis of the text right now, but there is another part in that, in that Bible verse where it does say that Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures, that he was numbered among the transgressors. That's the last point I want to look at here. And then we'll close out and we'll go to Q&A. Now, some theologians, like Ben Witherington III, who I really respect, he's a Protestant, but I really respect him, whose work deals a lot with Protestant pacifist ethic. So he believes that Jesus is commanding the ownership of swords so that the disciples may be counted as a transgressors And thus have Jesus convicted of revolution against the Roman Empire. So Jesus, in order to die, needs to be tried of something. He goes to court. They say, hell, your disciples have swords. That's, you know, evidence of a revolution, so we're going to put you to death. Because that's just what the Roman Empire does. They just put you to death for anything, for breathing the wrong way. They'll put you to death. So there's a couple problems with that interpretation, right? Uh, So what they're doing is they're sticking to the he was counted among the transgressors part. There's a couple problems with that interpretation. First, Scripture actually explicitly states that the transgressors in questions are the other crucified criminals, right? So you see that in Mark 15, chapter 15, verses 27 through 28. So it's not the disciples. It's actually the the thief and the other guy. So further, if you look at the Old Testament passage that Jesus is quoting in Isaiah 53, uh, the Old Testament passage that Jesus is quoting from states that his numbering among the transgressors would be at his death that the other crucified criminals is just a better more natural reading the second problem with this interpretation is that it would make jesus to be a legit criminal commanding his disciples to break the law and thus making jesus no longer an innocent sacrifice it would further be odd to rebuke saint peter for obeying exactly what he had just commanded uh, him to do which is to own swords so it wouldn't make sense of the biblical data and the third problem is that at the trial of Jesus, the swords are, they're not mentioned. What was Jesus put on trial for? Originally for claiming to be God, right? I am, and then the Pharisees, they rip, they like, oh, I'm so angry. But you had no mention whatsoever that you're stirring up a rebellion, that your disciples have swords, that you're plotting something, right? So it's not like an ATF plot where they come and, like, shoot your dog. So that's not mentioned at all. So that's probably not the correct interpretation of that scripture. And lastly, the timing of the command. So when Jesus is talking to the disciples and he tells us to buy some swords, he's doing it like at the Last Supper, just hours before he's about to get arrested. And most businesses, I think at that time, were open during the day. It'd be very strange to tell your disciples to go buy a sword in the middle of the night, mere hours before you get arrested. So what's up with that? So it seems unlikely that that would happen. So the better way to interpret the verse is to say, like, look, Jesus has asked them, when I was with you, did you lack anything? And they say, no. It's like, look, but now I'm about to be numbered among the transgressors, which is just a way of saying, I'm about to die. And now you will not have everything for you. I will not be able to provide everything for you. Therefore, go buy some swords. Why? Because Jesus won't be there to defend them anymore. He won't be there to calm the storm. So they need to defend themselves. And this command, I believe, still rings true. Today, Jesus is no longer walking among us. He's present. Yes. Gives us comfort. Yes. But I still lock my door at night. I still wear a seatbelt. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I do trust in Jesus. But I also still carry a firearm. I could say a lot more, but I think I'll stop here and I'll answer any questions you might have. Thank you. Thank uh,
1: you. My first question was when you were talking about the word swords and how Jesus talks about it, the consideration in with i guess the translation have you considered maybe sword's represents some other thing like maybe universally violence in that in that sense and and if it is that you know how how does that translate to everything and yeah
0: so if i could sum up the question is are there any other interpretations of the word sword right um there are uh, but i think the vast vast majority of the use of swords is used in a lethal way so like when you look at romans 13 where it says that uh, the Lord's servant does not bear the sword in vain, um, which is probably the, the, the most notable use of the word sword in the New Testament, then no, that, that is used as a lethal threat, a real lethal threat, right? So like they are the agent of God's wrath. There are other uses, like I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I don't think Jesus is like, I am here to like bring the Crusades, right? As, as much as that might get my adrenaline going, I don't think that's what he meant. If you look at it numerically, most of the use of the word swords in the New Testament is lethal. There are some metaphorical ones, sure, but most of them are lethal. And I think just in this particular context, because Jesus is asking them, like, were you in need of anything like a knapsack or a cloak? Since those things are, are physical and real, I think also likewise the sword is real too.
2: So one of the universal rules of safety for firearms is you do not point at that they're actually not willing to destroy right but also from about self-defense we cannot intend to kill so isn't that a contradiction between the two
0: so i did men- i did make mention in my talk about the the story of the, of the lady who came into the shop and said she didn't want to kill her attacker and i commended her for that i think that's noble and, and virtuous because i think she is ultimately right we shouldn't as our primary object will the death of another person I think in this case what I would appeal to is something called the um I would appeal to the law of double effect here or the principle of double effect where it's a, it's more of a it's a foreseen but unintended consequence right so like for example I I know that driving here causes global warming whatever you know I don't intend for it but I do foresee it right because of the exhaust in my my Chevy my gas guzzling Chevy I don't have a hybrid or a Tesla, I'm not that bougie. Um, Although I did see a couple here in Orange County, I was like, ooh, I don't belong here. But yeah, so I foresee that I am contributing to the pollution in the air in my driving here, but although I foresee it, I don't intend it. So in the same way, I would say, look, if if you are coming to take my life and the only way to preserve my life is to end yours, that is a foreseen consequence But it's not an intended consequence. There's an important distinction there. So I would say that makes them consistent by appealing to a principle of double effect.
2: My question is much more of a cultural one rather than, because it's like related to guns, but you know, in the past, what, two, three decades, we've been having this conversation about, um, you know, why don't we just remove guns? Because it'll make, you know, removing guns from like, Gun ownership will mean that everyone's going to be safe. It's the same thing I've heard with conversations about the death penalty. We should just take out the death penalty because, you know, our our prisons are so high-tech that they can keep anyone in and no one can escape, right? And for me, what I'm seeing is this larger trend, like people forgetting, like, the capacity of other people's capacity for evil. So I think my question to you is that do you think that the necessity of, like, gun ownership is, like, understanding that People have the capacity for evil, or is it? I think I, I think because that's kind of what I'm like seeing is that like we need to have guns because we understand that like other people can do harm, right? And so do you think that like the people that push for gun control are doing it because like they have this understanding that like we can change society so that no one needs to shoot anyone anymore, or is there something more nefarious underneath it?
0: Well, here's going to be an answer you're going to love. I don't know. Um, I, I will say I am pretty sympathetic to that explanation. Yeah, I mean, why, why do we kill each other? Because of sin. We all have it. So what's the best solution to that? It's Jesus. It's not carrying a gun. It's Jesus. You know, I, I, I am very much in favor of evangelizing the culture so that I don't have to shoot somebody. I don't want to shoot anybody. I, w- I want us to just have fun at a bar, at a brewery, talking about cool things i don't want to like go on the parking lot and, like oh no i gotta defend my wife my pregnant wife so that would suck so yeah i would say if you if you feel the need to have a, a firearm it's because of the recognition that there is evil and i think even our lord recognizes that when he tells his disciples to buy uh some swords like i am not going to be here to protect you right you're not going to have the fullness of my grace and charity just abounding on you. Like, I'm not going to be able to calm storms for you anymore. You got to start taking care of yourself. So buy some swords. So it is sad. It's a sad statement that I would have to carry a gun. I would love to live in a society where I don't have to carry a gun. And eventually I am. Well, hold on. Let me take that back. I hope I am because I'll die in grace. And then in heaven, I won't need a gun. Hopefully there's still target shooting though.
1: Yeah, I think you alluded to this point earlier in your talk about how some people can view guns as a form of idolatry if that's you know their primary focus but i think we do live in a culture especially out here where gun ownership is not is not the norm and a lot of people aren't raised with guns i know i wasn't and so the presence of guns definitely raises people's cortisol levels especially if they're not used to it and that can interact, uh, affect an interaction, and unfortunately, people can take advantage of that perception. You know, oh, I've got a gun. You're, you're going to be, you know, your guard's going to be raised. You're not going to be thinking clearly, and that draws us away from viewing others in Christ. And just wanted to see, get your, your take and perception on that.
0: I definitely agree with a lot of that. People who are new to it get excited, but then that means we're, we're losing something in the culture. Where why are guns new? Like I have a little brother and sister, uh, they've been around my firearms for quite a while and I've, you know, I've trained them on it. And you know, whenever they say, oh, Adrian bought another gun, it's just something they kind of roll their eyes at. It's not like, oh, let me see, let me see, I wanna like touch it, right? It's like, ooh, the forbidden fruit. Because they're just exposed to it. I think the solution, right, because you do get a lot of people who do get excited and when you're excited, that can hinder your ability to reason clearly and that can lead to some really tragic decisions. I think the solution to that would to be to expose kids early, not just to like guns themselves but things in like the gun world. So like for example, I teach religion at my high school and I was giving a lesson on faith one day and how you have to like faith is trust and if you if you don't trust in God, you're you're going to get hurt. And the way I did that was I brought my body armor to school, right? And I said, look, it's just like your faith is like body armor where you have to physically like face a threat so you get hit here and not on the side and like mess up all your organs, right? Point is, they understand like faith as body armor and they were able to physically see a piece of, oh, I don't know, but it's like it's in that gun genre of stuff. So I'm exposing them not to firearms, that'd be illegal <laughs> and probably immoral. But to body armor. Body armor is safe. There's no there's no laws concerning body armor, although they are trying to take that away from you now. So what I'm trying to do is not only like teach the faith, I'm also trying to get them used to like the tools in that world so that they don't get as excited and it's not as like forbidden for them and they don't make any stupid decisions in the future. So take your kids out, expose them not just to firearms, but to you know, how to reload your own ammo, how to clean a firearm, how to, how to dial in a, a scope, stuff like that. Um, in the Catechism, we find that God made all of this on purpose, not by accident. And as part of that purpose is evil that dwells. And to what degree have guns suppressed the rise and complete takeover from evil? To what degree have guns suppressed evil? On the handout, I list seven different studies in which guns suppress evil. (laughs) Not only do they suppress evil in a deterrent effect. Okay, so let me talk about the studies here. Now, this is an opportunity to talk about the studies. The studies that I listed on your handout mostly have to do with individual self-defense. I think... A lot of people, when they talk about guns, they talk about its deterrent effect on, like, society at large in a preemptive way. But I think guns, although they can do that, I think the better way to think about guns is how they are used in a crime, in the moment of a crime, especially in a defensive manner. Because that's what guns are for, right? It's not like I have a gun on me and then there are going to be criminals out there somewhere who are like, "You know what? I'm not going to rob somebody today." Some of the studies that I have is they actually I think it's 95% of the time that people use a gun defensively. This is point number 6 on your handout. Uh 95% of the people that use guns defensively, they merely have to brandish the weapon to break off the attack. So not only is it is owning a gun safe for the potential victim, it's also safe for the criminal. They don't get hurt. It brandishes off the attack and they're fine and they're safe. So it does suppress evil, or if it doesn't suppress evil, it prevents it from finishing, from termination. So it, it terminates in a good way in this sense. If you want more data on that, just visit or look up at any of the studies that I have on the handout for you. But there's lots of social data out there, especially look at the work of Gary Kleck. So you mentioned a word, uh, tool. <clears throat> the responsible gun owners that I've met view a firearm as a tool. So I think a lot of the problems that we have with the attitude of firearms is the way they're advertised in the media and people who don't like them they they're the boogeyman, their villain. And you know, the whole adage that firearms don't kill people, it's people that kill people because you can use anything as a weapon. So if we took out all the firearms in the world. I think we would still kill each other. Yeah. Uh, and I think the social data bears that out too. So, In places like China, where it's very difficult to own a gun, they have a high rate of not mass shootings, but mass stabbings. If you look at places like the UK and Mexico and Scotland, places where it's very difficult to own a firearm, although gun violence, and this is the distinction I was telling you to keep an eye out for, although gun violence and gun deaths might have gone down, crime in general goes up. You're more likely to get raped, you're more likely to get robbed. Not only, you're more likely to get robbed while you're in your house. So yeah, I I would say even if we were to get rid of guns, it wouldn't solve the problem. And in fact, it might exacerbate the problem. Absolutely. First off, uh, thank you for putting this on. Usually I find these uh, more varied subjects a lot more
1: interesting, you know, that whether people do this with any sort of malintent in terms of gun control and what have you, there does seem to be this flawed idea if you've ever read any Isaiah
0: Berlin of, uh, you know, the uh, positive and negative rights. But the point here is that At best, it is people who really do think that they can actually mold humanity into what they like it to be, at which point they can grow past guns or what have you. But yeah, basically, I mean, would you say that we just need to accept more of what humans are and less what we'd like them to be? So like if we got our theology down correct, the, the secular stuff would just follow? Yes and no. It would definitely help. But part of the problem with society isn't that we have a wrong view of nature, right? Like when I go to confession, I don't confess my sins because, oh, I didn't know. or I, I, I. No, the, the point is not that I have just a wrong view of nature, although that does contribute. What's wrong with me isn't that I'm intellectually wrong, but like I'm morally wrong. The good that I know that I ought to do, I don't do. The evil that I know that I shouldn't do, that I do. Who will save me from this mortal coil, right? I do think it would help greatly, yes, especially when we try to, in place of Christianity and our theology, we replace it with other theologies, like a communist theology, a socialist theology, other humanist theologies. And I do think they are theologies, despite what they might say. At root, it's not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. And that does require not just an argument, not a debate, not a lecture, but an experience or as Pope Francis might say, an encounter.